Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, explore its themes and story, and judge the actions of its characters at the Saga Thing. And with this year's conference at Kalamazoo safely behind us, we're each back at our home bases in Ohio and Massachusetts. And have you recovered from the usual post-conference exhaustion? More or less, I'd say I'm back to normal. Yeah. It was great to finally do one of these face-to-face. Uh, it was actually a little disquieting. I'm not used to thinking of you as a real person. <laughs> wow. You're like a narcissist Geppetto. Uh, thank you, I guess. But uh, wait, what, what makes Geppetto a narcissist? If I'm not mistaken, yeah. Pinocchio's a puppet. He's an actual puppet. So why would Geppetto think of him as a, a real boy until he becomes one? <laughs> Apparently he's also a vampire. Yeah, no, <laughs> A real boy. You're not getting this. That's why you're a narcissist version of Geppetto. Ah, I see. Geppetto, I'm just a- if he were a narcissist, is the point I'm making. I see. I see. All right. Well, now that that's cleared up, tell me, uh, what exactly <laughs> are we talking about this time, John? Well, uh, this is one of those times when the sagas themselves tell us where to go next. Were you visited by the saga oracle? I- is there a saga oracle that I don't know about? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just basic literary analysis. Don't get hung up ah. on uh, Our last saga was Thorstein the White Saga, and uh, we both made the same point about it. We both agreed that it was terrible, right? No. (laughs) I know you weren't a big fan, but I thought it was an interesting little mini saga. No, what we both agreed is that it felt like a prelude to something bigger. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember whether we included this in the podcast, but we were comparing it to the first chapters of Gisli Saga, where where there's an entire generation's worth of struggles described in like a handful of paragraphs. And and those struggles turned out to be foretaste of the main action of that saga. Uh, But that that worked pretty well in Gisli Saga. My problem with Thorstein the White Saga was that it didn't lead into anything else. It just kind of sits there awkwardly hoping for more, but failing to achieve much. Kind of like you in high school. (laughs) <laughs> I don't remember having that kind of ambition in high school. Um, the Thorstein saga turns out to be a precursor to a different saga. And that's the one we're covering for today. Vapenfjörthing saga. The saga of the people of Vopnafjord. Now, is this the part where I mumble something about a button? Yes, please do. Mumble button button. Not real. <laughs> in this episode, we follow the adventures of Brod Helgi Thorgelsen. A man who rises to infamy after his friendship with the wise Gothi Gator is fractured by greed and petty squabbling. We discuss the breakdown of their relationship and the violent ripples that it sends through the district. Like so many sagas before it, this one is about the pursuit of vengeance. While Broad Helgi rushes into violence like a bull with an ice spur on his head, Gator is more reluctant. Is Gator a coward, or is he playing the long game? Find out who comes out on top and who fate carries away. Listen, as the next generation tries to resolve the feud themselves, will they choose violence like their fathers? Or will the sons of Brodhelgi and Gator embrace new methods of conflict resolution? Come with us on a journey through time and space as Saga Thing presents the saga of the people of Vopnafjord. So ultimately, this saga is about a friendship that goes horribly wrong, like body count wrong. And we've seen this as a subject before. Uh, Njal saga hinged in part on the strength of Gunnar's friendship with uh, Njal and the weakness of the Njalsons' friendship with Hoskel Trainson. Sure. And Gisli's saga was even more like this one, with the ostentatious friendships among Gisli, Thorkel, Thorgrim Gothi, and Vestin Vestinson turning sour and eventually leading to a long series of killings. 
Yeah, I mean, these are lofty heights. Mm. Like we're placing the saga of the people of Vopenfjord uh, among some of the greatest sagas of Iceland. But but we're not the only ones to do that. Carol Clover, for example, calls this a saga of the district chronicle type. And she compares it to Erbidja saga and, and Laxdal saga. Okay, but let's be clear that she's comparing them in form, not necessarily in quality. Uh, so you're saying this one's better than y'all or Laxdal? <laughs> or are you saying it's worse? Well, we'll soon discover that. For now, I'm just saying it's different. Okay, so I think that we no, should... It's, it's, it's not as good. Oh, you couldn't just leave it hanging there, huh? You just had to <laughs> no. get that out there. Yeah, that would have bothered me. Uh, I mean, this saga's got its charms, but it's also got what we can charitably call its quirks. Nah. Uh, Jonas Christensen argues that there's a fair amount of raw invention in this saga. In fact, he says that, quote, the author of Vopenfarthinga's saga displays such ignorance of topography that he cannot have been in the locality of Vopnafjord when he wrote this work. Well, you know I like good Icelandic topographical discussion as much as the next guy, so... Uh, considerably more than the next guy, I would think. <laughs> I think there are other people out there that appreciate it as much as I do. Uh-huh. Uh, but Christensen's right. Uh, even compared to the other sagas from around this area, like Thorstein Saga or Droplogersana Saga, um, this one's been criticized for its invention of places and relative distances. But not everything's fiction here. Uh, if, if you were mm. to visit Vapnafjord, perhaps on a, a fishing trip, which it's famous for, uh, you'll find several farms and locales that are mentioned in this saga. Uh, mm-hmm. The one you'll most want to visit, I think, is, is Krosovik, which is where one of our protagonists lives later in the saga. Yes. See, I knew you'd have something to say about the geography. Well, I can't help it. And and, and one of these days, all that studying is going to pay off, assuming I ever actually get a chance to visit Iceland and spend some time exploring. <laughs> well, but it'll happen you, one day. Right. Sure. It's worth it's worth visiting. I've said before. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if the saga's geographical accuracy sometimes attracts negative attention, whether deserved or not, uh, scholarly opinion isn't all bad. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, Paul Schock, for example, praises it for being skillfully designed and artistically constructed. Oh, that's nice. And sufficiently vague enough to make me suspicious. Well, yeah, I mean, Shock doesn't really say much about the saga beyond that, though he does reference a few other scholars who've written about it. Yeah, well, I didn't get a chance to read Shock for this, but I did see some praise from other sources. Uh, Alan Berger, for example, notes that the saga author reveals a sophisticated grasp of the law. Uh, Berger has an article all about this in Saga Book, which is available online. We should uh, link to that on the website. Yeah, we should and possibly will. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Jesse Bayok, who we uh, spent some time with at Kalamazoo, says something Mm -hmm. similar. Uh, He devotes an entire chapter of his book, Viking Age Iceland, to this saga, and he calls it a detailed picture of the means by which power was regulated and political ambition could be contained. We'll have to talk about that in a little bit more detail later. Sure. Uh, Well, in short, it sounds like this is a saga about the ways power, law, and social standing will intersect. Yeah, it's a great sounding pitch for a story. But it's also a saga of contrasts. I mean, we're going to see two generations with very different approaches to resolving conflict here. That's right. Yeah, the uh, the saga's broader sense of history is pretty interesting as well. It was written in the first half of the 13th century, and its action takes place in the late 10th century, just on the cusp of Iceland's conversion to Christianity. And we'll see during the saga that the author is very aware of that context and builds it into his story. In other words, this is one of those sagas that pits the habits and customs of Viking Age Iceland up against Christian Iceland. Mm, I wonder which side comes out on top. Mm, it'll have to remain a mystery for now. <laughs> I'm sure everybody listening can already guess. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. So uh, there's something else we should really address before we get started on this, though we will get started soon. Uh, yes, the elephant in the room. Yeah, there are some important pieces missing from the middle. 
the Ella ant in the room? Uh, not a missing piece from the elephant, but the missing chunks <laughs> of the story. The lacuna in the manuscript, of course. I know, I know. Uh, yeah, this saga <laughs> is a chance survival. Uh, all the manuscript copies of it are lost, except for a single damaged sheet of vellum from the middle of the saga. Mm. All the surviving versions are early printed editions, and every one of them is lacking significant sections of the narrative. Yeah, there are actually a few missing pieces, but there's one really important section missing where some kind of big things happen. Mm-hmm. And all the printed versions are consistently missing that same section. So we can be fairly sure that they were all drawn from the same incomplete manuscript. Right. In other words, this is a saga that just barely made it to us. Right. So let's say then that it's a saga that mostly made it to us. It's got a few flesh wounds, but it's more alive than dead. Now, most modern editions plug the holes as best they can. But when we get to the gaps, we'll have to do a bit of speculating about what's missing from the narrative. Does that mean that we are ready to begin? Well, as soon as I ask you a question, Andy, Ah. how many Hravenkels would you say this saga is? Ah, the old Hravenkel question. Well, okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, that's our standard unit of saga measurement for those who aren't up on their Hravenkels. This one's, I I feel like it's really close to Hravenkel saga in length. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe about one, one and a half, something like that. That's good, yeah. It's actually 9,619 words, or 1.05. One and a twentieth Ravenkels. That's almost exactly a Ravenkel. Very close to the same length. Yeah, which means we should be able to cover the saga in one shot like we did with the Ravenkel. And judgments, right? Well, we're sure going to try. We're not getting to judgments. (laughs) (laughs) Part 1. The Bromance of Broad Helgi and Gatehir. Now, we already said that Thorstein the White Saga reads like a prelude to the saga of the people of Upnafjord. Yes, that's right. Well, it turns out that the author agrees with us. Uh, This saga begins, We take up the thread of this story when a man named Helgi lived at Hof. Yeah, but this saga is usually dated to the 13th century, and Thorstein's saga isn't written until the 14th, so there's quite a Uh big gap there. Yeah, which means we have a few possible scenarios here. Either the author is aware of an oral tradition surrounding the story that includes the previous generation, or else the author knows an earlier written version of Thorstein's saga that hasn't survived. Possibly, yeah. Or or this is a conventional beginning to an oral style of storytelling. Very good. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, The actual Norse is sort of between oral and written formulae. It literally translates as something like, there we take up the story when there was a man dwelling at Hof. So this is a problem right from the outset. Mm -hmm. How aware is our author of the events of the saga of Thorstein the White? Well, we have to assume he knows quite a bit. Well, certainly he knows a version of events, which makes Mm -hmm. sense, although he does get some details wrong when we compare the two. Uh, As Christensen said, the author's knowledge of the district's topography is spotty. And and I mentioned last time that this author offers some other things that are different from Thorstein, like the details of Broadhelgi's ancestry. Uh, But that's probably for the best, if we think about it. Well, you remember that Brodhelgi is supposed to be the great-great-grandson of Rollo from Vikings. Sure. Well, uh, remember, no other source backs up that claim. I mm-hmm. think we both looked into that. Instead, Vopnafjord gives the name uh, Oswald as the, as the figure that is his uh, great-great-grandfather. Yeah, that whole descended from one of the most famous Vikings thing. It sounded a little too good to be true. Yeah, there, there's also a brief recounting of Thorstein the Fair's brothers and their doomed fight against Thorgil's men. 
But here, Thorstein's brothers are called Thorkel and Haven, as opposed to Thorkel and Einar. Um, and Thorstein the Fair isn't even mentioned. Yeah, the short version, I think, is that this is a sequel to Thorstein the White, but that you can't get too hung up on the mismatched details. And that it that's may not right. know it's a sequel to anything. Exactly. And, and Thorstein the White, we could look at as a prequel that's produced later. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So so now we've got our caveat firmly in place. I think we're ready to start uh, again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, for real this time. Briefly, this first section just sets the table. Uh, we get three short vignettes that establish the nature of our main figures. In chapter one, we get a retelling of the story of Broadhelgi and the bullfight that we covered at the end of the saga of Thorstein the White. Mm-hmm. In chapter two, we're told of a feud between two of Thorstein the White's thingmen, Svart and Skivi, and how Broadhelgi killed his first man to end the troubles. And the third chapter tells of Geter Lutingsen, a neighboring chieftain who's Broadhelgi's close friend and brother-in-law. Yeah. Yeah, this really is a model of economic storytelling. I mean, all three of these stories are told in less than a thousand words total. Um, and one thing we didn't mention is that Broadhelgi uh, tries his first case at the Althing at the age of 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our author this time doesn't mess around. No, he does not. Uh, now, that first story we mentioned we can cover quickly because we did cover it in the last saga. But in case anyone is listening to these out of order... Shame. Shame. But uh, we can forgive you just this once. Yes. Uh, briefly, Brodhelgi uh, once tied an ice cleat to his bull's forehead to give it an advantage over another bull it had beef with. Oh, nicely done. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I figured I'd be primed for some ribbing after that terrible pun. Oh, but, uh, please don't. Please don't. I had hoped the first one was just an occident. <laughs> <clears throat> now I just want to shut off the microphones and go home. <laughs> after occident, please do. Why don't you just make like a tree and get out of here? No, let's just keep going. Uh, you were getting to the meat of the story. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> straightening my tie. Mm-hmm. And with the ice cleat's help, Broadhelgi's bull killed the other one by stabbing it to death. Mm-hmm. And Broadhelgi ends up with his nickname as a result. Broadhelgi, uh, as we covered in the nickname section, means ice spur Helgi. Right. Now, what's interesting here is that this story, it's told entirely neutrally in this saga. In Thorstein the White, the author tells us that people don't like Helgi's trick and that Spur Helgi is meant as a shameful name. In this saga, it's a simple consequence. After this incident, he was called Broad Helgi. So the question is, does this saga try to whitewash Helgi's reputation a little? Or is the author of Thorstein the White trying to tarnish it, perhaps maybe knowing a little bit more about uh, the the saga of the people of Valtenfjord? Right. I'm going to say maybe neither. Uh, Hmm. I said that last time the author of Thorstein had a weakness for telling us things instead of showing them to us. I don't think he trusted us to figure out that Helgi is a resourceful guy who has almost no moral qualms about doing what he thinks he should to get the upper hand. Hmm. So he told us. This author's a little more sure-handed, or at least in that respect he is. Yeah, okay. But uh, there are some not-so-subtle hints coming up that Helgi's a difficult figure, and we're going to have some trouble with him. Yep. Uh, But in the next story, we get a much clearer sense of why people might like someone like Helgi, especially when there's trouble afoot. I'll be my guest. Well, thank you, Lumiere. So a foreigner named Svart comes to Iceland and builds a farm in Vopnafjord next to a poor farmer named Skithi. Svart is a bully who likes to pick fights, and he kills Skithi over a dispute involving grazing rights. Now, even though he's only 12 years old, Broadhelgi takes up the case and gets Svart outlawed. Mm -hmm. But that just causes more trouble. 
Svart, understandably, is not impressed by being outlawed by a 12-year-old. He just moves out onto Smyrvatan Heath nearby, and he begins stealing food and livestock from local farmers. Now, way back in Erbidge's saga, we, we saw a law passed that children under 16 couldn't bring lawsuits into court. But mm-hmm. remember, this is a set a few years before that law's passed. Or we're somewhere in the 940s or 950s here. So there's an awareness right. of what's possible. Absolutely. And this is exactly why, right? Uh, Broad Helge's now in the position, both as the lawsuit's plaintiff and as the local chieftain's heir, of needing to do something about Svart. But he's also a 12-year-old boy. He's at a serious disadvantage in a fight with a large man. What he needs is an advantage, something unexpected, something like a large rock down his trousers. No one expects the large rock down their trousers. (laughs) Yeah, Um, he just sticks a flat stone into his pants and up his shirt as a kind of impromptu armor. Yeah, we saw this once before, didn't we? Uh In um, Vatensdal Saga? Yep. Ingolf Thorsteinsson, right? Did something exactly like this. And we, we praised him for it. That's right. And they must wear their shirts kind of billowy in the 10th century uh, because no one ever spots the giant stones <laughs> hidden down their trousers. Right. It, it does seem to work surprisingly well. You'd think people would work out that a rock isn't actually very good armor. Right. I mean, just right. aim for the parts of the guy that aren't covered by a rock. <laughs> it does suggest a kind of uh, MacGyver quality, though. Making weapons <laughs> or armor out of whatever's handy is part of how men survive in these stories, right? I mean, if right, you've yeah, got a flinting make a broad knife axe out of some gu- chewing gum and a paperclip, <laughs> right? I mean, if you've got a, a flinting knife and a sheet of blubber, those are your weapons. If you've got a sled runner <laughs> or a pile of rocks, that's what you use. It makes sense as one of the subtle ways mm-hmm. uh, the resourcefulness of Icelanders is on display in the sagas. It's very yeah. cool. I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Broadhelgi tracks Svart down by following his prince in the snow and attacks him at once. Svart swings a halberd at him, but it bounces off the rock so strongly that Svart falls to his knees. And Broadhelgi, quick to take advantage, chops off Svart's leg. Ouch. And, mm-hmm. and in response to this, Svart speaks. He says, You will be my slayer, but your family will be plagued by such sorrow henceforth that it will be remembered for all ages while the land is still inhabited. Not a nice prophecy. Uh, no. Which helps explain why Broadhelgi's next move is to cut off Svart's head. Yeah. Uh, but cursed or not, Broadhelgi gets a strong reputation in the area because he's willing to solve problems, right? With a sword, if necessary. Yeah. And remember, he's still 12, right? Yeah. It's very impressive for a 12-year-old. <laughs> so that's quite a beginning. So we said there were three stories in this section, and we've already covered two, and I, I can't help but notice that we haven't even met the other half of this supposed bromance. All right. So as we said, this saga begins with the story of two friends. They are Brodhelgi Thorgelson and Gator Lutingson. Yes, so we know Brodhelgi now. Uh, he's a hot-tempered and fearless goalie who kills people and bulls with a somewhat <laughs> casual attitude. Maybe inventive, though. An inventive mm-hmm. but casual sure. attitude. Sure. Uh, tell us, who is Gator Lutingson? Um, well, I wish you hadn't asked it like that. This is going to sound flippant, but he's the son of Luting. <laughs> That's <laughs> obviously unhelpful. I know, but it's important. Uh, Luting is a wealthy and wise man near Krosovik, and that sets up Gator pretty well. He also gains a reputation for wisdom and high-mindedness. He's a popular Gothi or chieftain in the area, mm-hmm. and he stands to inherit handsomely from his father's success. And he's Brodhelgi's brother-in-law as well. Yeah, yeah. his sister Hala is married to Brodhelgi. Ah, oh, lucky Brodhelgi. Mm, uh, Gethir has a younger brother named Blang as well. And Gethir is married too. His wife is Halkatla, Thrudrandi's daughter. 
Now, that's an important piece of information. Mm-hmm. Hall Cutler is the aunt of the Droplogersons, uh, who have their own saga named after them. Right. And people who have been paying attention to the sequence that we've done here with this saga following on Thorstein may get a hint there as to where we're heading next. Ooh. Uh, in the meantime, we get the names of a bunch of district men who are all supporters of Getir. Oh, yes. Yeah, the most notable group is a set of three brothers. The Steinbjarnsons, mm-hmm. uh, Thormald Stickstarer, <laughs> whose name I love, yep. uh, Stickstarer. Uh, there's Ref and also Ale. The three brothers have seven sons and a daughter. All of them are Thingmen of Getir. And the daughter, uh, Halfred Ale's daughter, is married to Getir's son, Thorkel. So. Right. So what we're learning is that Gator is well-connected and pretty much set from birth. Absolutely. Broad Helgi, on the other hand, loses his father when he's three years old and grows up on a farm alone with his elderly, sight-impaired grandfather. Well, all right, but I, I don't know how far we can push that. I mean, his grandfather's Thorstein the White, who you mm-hmm. took as Thingman last time. Yes. And you couldn't say enough about what a great reputation he had. And, and Broad Helgi's also a chieftain, like his grandfather. Hardly an orphan waif here. Yeah, no, I don't mean that he's like Oliver Twistson or something like that. <laughs> I mean I mean that the saga sets up Gate here as being part of a large network of friends, relations, and supporters. Ah. By comparison, Broad Helgi is presented as socially isolated. Once his grandfather dies, he's essentially alone in the saga. Even though uh, that's kn- partly because his grandfather tried to keep him away from people because okay. he was very likely to kill them. But we know that he's got <laughs> uncles and aunts and cousins. But none of them play a prominent role in the story. Well, actually, that makes some sense. I I wasn't going to mention it, but that whole clan of brothers and their kids who support Gaetir. Yeah, the Steinbjörnsons, yeah. Right, yeah. They're the sons and grandsons of Steinbjörn Court. Yeah. He doesn't really matter to this saga, but we learned in Thorstein the White that Steinbjörn had to give up a bunch of prime farmland in the area to pay off a financial debt. Mm-hmm. Yes, and he was forced to give that land to Brodhelgi's grandfather, Thorstein the White. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So there might be a little bit of resentment there. Yep. Okay, I, I'm buying it now. So we're saying that the author's setting up Gator as having more social capital than Brodhelgi, but Brodhelgi as an active figure who gets respect by getting things done. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Mm. Okay, and this section concludes by establishing that despite their different characters, these two are the closest of friends. They're bosom mm-hmm. friends, one That's might right. say. That's right, boon companions. Yes. The saga says, Such was the friendship between Brod, Helgi, and Gaetir that they shared all their pastimes together and all their decision-making. They met almost daily, and their great friendship became a byword among the people. Right, and anyone who knows the sagas knows that friendship is about to be tested. Mm, now that's a segue. Part 2. How is Hraven the Skipper like the 1st Battalion of the U.S. Army? Um, John? <laughs> yes? What kind of title is that? It's a riddle. Uh, the 1st Battalion is called the Big Red One, if that helps you. It does not help me even a little bit, but... Uh, <laughs> Clearly, you're fishing here, so I'll bite. Uh-huh. How is Hraven the Skipper like the 1st Battalion of the U.S. Army? Well, one's a Red Corps Legion, and the other's a dead Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, why would you do that? It's a dad that's a, joke. That's I'm a, a dad. <laughs> I'm allowed like four of those a day. <laughs> a Red Corps Legion, the others... <laughs> A dead Norwegian. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, I, I think we're going to have to charge you double for that one, mm. uh, especially after all the stinkers we were tossing out earlier. It's totally worth it. <laughs> all right. So I think the people liked it, though. I well, can hear them chuckling. Yes, th- there you go. That was me. Uh, <laughs> so this section of the saga introduces two ship's captains, Thorgir the Christian, who's an Icelander, and his Norwegian companion, Hraven. Hooray! You know, it's been a while since we've had a proper Norwegian companion. I agree. Long live the red shirts. No, incidentally, it, you can pick up a nice red Norwegian companion shirt at the Saga Thing store. You just look for the link on our blog site, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. And I highly recommend you get yours quick because we're going to shut that store down soon and start anew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you were saying. So the two men are both ship's captains and arrive on separate ships. But while Thorgir has his own farm to see to, Hraven has to look for winter lodgings. I don't know why he doesn't just stay with Thorgir, but he doesn't. <laughs> the first person to come along to see the new ship is Broad Helgi. Now, it's not clear why, but Hraven and Broad Helgi don't like the look of one another from the start. Mm-hmm. Broad Helgi makes ostentatious offers to house Hraven and to buy valuables from him, but Hraven wants no part of Broad Helgi and refuses both offers. Hraven also claims they can't get along because I'm told you are proud and avaricious, while I am humble and moderate. Uh huh. Yeah, he almost seems to be picking a fight here. Uh, we should also say that Hraven is being somewhat generous in his evaluation of his own character. Uh, the author says that Hraven was famously rich in treasure, but a stingy, cold sort of man and always mm-hmm. self-contained. You know, one of the themes the saga keeps returning to is evaluating men based on their perceived attitude and skill regarding money. Hmm. Yeah, that, that actually carries over in the prequel saga of Thorstein the White as well. Hmm. Well, and here it's actually used in part to suggest a bit of hypocrisy by Hraven. He wears a large gold ring on his arm, uh, which suggests that his self-declared humility and moderation doesn't extend to personal adornment. That's a good point. And Brodhelgi's enraged by this. But before he can do anything about it, Gaetia rides to the ship and offers Hraven a place to stay. This time, Hraven accepts the offer. And he, and he... He ruins a perfectly good friendship into the bargain. Well, it's not ruined yet, and he didn't mean to, but the mm-hmm. rot is starting to set in a bit. Brodhelgi definitely goes away with his nose out of joint. And Hraven goes about selling his wares, but he's driving hard bargains and only selling small amounts at a time, which starts to annoy everyone around. Mm -hmm. So everyone settles down on their farms for the winter. And at that year's Yule celebration, which is being hosted by Eil Stambjarnason, it's the next time these men have the chance to be face to face. Mm -hmm. Brodhelgi and Gaetir spend a long time in conversation together, but nothing else happens of note, and no one knows what they're talking about. Now, including us, by the way. The, mm-hmm. the author never does tell us what this is about. Right. Well, maybe and maybe not. Later that winter, at a gathering at a local farm, Brodhelgi, Gaetir, and Hraven the Norwegian all attend, and Hraven makes himself obnoxious, asking people for the money they owe him. Yeah, well, and they actually lure him there by telling him that a lot of people that owe him money will be there, and he uh-huh. kind of takes that bait. Yeah. And, and the guy sounds kind of annoying. Yeah, it's, I, I kept thinking of uh, Maury from Goodfellas. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So late in the gathering, when Broadhelgi and Gator are both at the farmhouse, word comes that Hraven the Norwegian has been slain. Oh my goodness. And no one knows who the killer was. Ah, Norwegian companion. We hardly knew ye. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is a secret killing, so this mm-hmm. is a murder, right? Yeah, no it one is, yes. declares this... Right, and in fact, it's a true secret murder. Right, the author never does say who done it. 
Uh, well, he doesn't say, but it's pretty clear that we're meant to think that Brold Helgi or Geitir or both were behind it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the author's too subtle about it. He says, There was a man named Tjorvi, big and very strong. Tjorvi was a friend of Brod Helgi and Geitir, and he was nowhere to be seen throughout the day that the Norwegian was slain. Mm-hmm. Some men took the view that Hrofen had died by being led to a dangerous place where he perished. So what you're saying is that our quote-unquote heroes may have murdered an innocent man to steal his merchandise. Oh, well, I'm not saying this. The the author is. <laughs> <laughs> the, the next line of the saga is, Brod Helgi and Geitir decided they should each have half of Robin's goods. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a little suspicious. Oh, I'd call it pretty definitive, mm. honestly. Although, I, I'll admit freely, when I first read this, I didn't really suspect Geitir. Hmm. I, I, it was only after reading it again that I started thinking maybe he colluded with Helgi on this murder. Yeah, I don't think it's really ambiguous. I mean, their behavior after the murder suggests that both Brod Helgi and Gator seem to know the circumstances of Robin's death are, in fact, suspicious. They agree to wait until spring to divide the loot. And in the meantime, it's locked in an outbuilding at Gator's farm where nobody else can get it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Brod Helgi delivers a speech condemning the murderer and presumably pledging to spend the rest of his life looking for the real killers. Uh-huh. Is that our first OJ joke? I think it must be, yeah. Oh, well, I'm not sure how to feel about that. It might be too <laughs> soon. But uh, we're at least agreed that they killed Throffin, right? Well... Well, at least they, they had him killed. Yeah, well, it's likely. Or led uh, off a precipice. Right, but we never really do get a resolution on this. I would say I'm 75 to 80% sure they did it. I'd go more than that. Maybe not enough to convict, but enough that I wouldn't want to give them a reason to think that I might be worth more dead than alive. All right. So they killed Hrofen, and and now uh, allegedly, they, allegedly killed Hrofen. They've got enough for a civil suit, but uh, <laughs> now they've got his loot. So they're free and clear. Everything's right. good. Unless Hrofen turns out to be someone's Norwegian companion. Right. At this point, Thorleaf the Christian turns up again, having spent the winter on his own farm, and he's a good guy, and he wants to do what's right. So he sails to Krosovic to Gator's farm, unlocks the storehouse, and he takes all of Hraven's valuables. He then sends word to Brod Helgi and Gator that he intends to bring Hraven's belongings back to Norway to be delivered to his next of kin, as is right. It seems entirely reasonable, really, but the, yeah. the law doesn't always conform to what seems reasonable. The law in this case is a little bit complicated, but it's explained very well in that Alan Berger article we mentioned earlier. Essentially, if no one else has a direct claim on the belongings of a dead Norwegian, the Gothi on whose land he died can claim his stuff. The heirs can also make a claim, but they have to do so themselves and in person in Iceland. Mm. So the issue here is whether Thorleif, as a business partner of Robins, can make a claim to his belongings. Right. And the law recognizes his right to do so, but only under certain circumstances and only if their partnership was of the right sort. And that's Mm -hmm. left ambiguous. In which case, we're right back to the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Mm -hmm. The law does allow Thorleif, Geitir, and Hraven's heirs to claim Hraven's belongings, but all under only very specific circumstances. And Brod Helgi thinks that the law supports him and Geitir, while Thorleaf, who isn't well-versed in legal detail, mm-hmm. is operating on the principle that the heirs have first claim to the dead man's property. Exactly. And we should be clear that ambiguity here doesn't necessarily mean that the author isn't doing a good job. 
Right? The law is often created with interpretive space, and it's the job of those involved to determine the right application of law to a given circumstance. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say and, that's one of the things that literature is so good at. It takes mm-hmm. those ambiguous things about the, the kind of the, the customs and practices of, of human societies right. and, and places some emphasis on them so that we can explore the ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And, and Berger is pretty impressed with this saga's speculations on legal tradition. Right? He calls this an example of, quote, the manly art of legal prosecution and defense. Oh, that's a great line. Yeah, that <laughs> sums up the saga attitude toward law right there. Brilliant. Uh-huh. And we can also talk about why that's a problem for Iceland, by the way, especially in the later saga age. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not now. We've left Thorleif dangling for too long. Yes. Well, the rest of this episode is briefly told. Brod, Helgi, and Gator jump into their ships and chase down Thorleif. There is a short verbal confrontation, but it stops short of physical violence when Gator is the one who backs down from a fight. Something yeah, what's gotten into him all of a sudden? Well, in their rush to catch Thorleif, Brodhelgi and Gator and their men all grabbed small fishing vessels rather than warships or even larger merchant vessels. In one sense, it worked because the small boats were fast enough and they caught Thorleif's slower ship. I see. But now that they're there, they've got a real disadvantage in a fight because their boats aren't made or sized for combat. Yeah, which Gator points out. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, Gator's hopeful that a bad wind will blow Thorleaf back towards shore, which I think is kind of wishful thinking and a little bit <laughs> embarrassing. Um, contrary to uh, Gator's wishes, Thorleaf does get a steady tailwind and sails off to Norway without further incident. <laughs> yeah, Gator turns out to be a terrible meteorologist. Uh, yeah, right. Oh, and later we're told that Thorleaf does indeed deliver Hraven's merchandise to his heirs in Norway. Right. And that's a little bit of a problem because it means that Thorleif was acting as a loyal friend to Hraven the entire time. Exactly. Which means while we're at it, we probably have to accept that Brodhelgi and Gatier are almost certainly plotters and accomplices to murder. And that's not great. Look, John, nobody's perfect. And they were planning on seizing their victim's belongings. Well, that was the point of killing him. Look, (laughs) I, I was thinking about killing you for a beer at Kalamazoo last month, to be honest. What? Nothing. (laughs) <laughs> yes, Helgi and Gator, they're not coming off well. Not uh-huh. at all. <clears throat> and uh, they're nursing a bit of a grudge, and uh, I might be too at this point. Ooh. A year later, Thorleif returns to Iceland, and Broad Helgi decides to see if he can't get a little revenge for being outmaneuvered. He has a relative named Steinvor, a priestess at the local temple. When she complains that Thorleif doesn't pay his temple dues, Broad Helgi takes over the case. Yeah, this is really something unusual. I mean, direct references to these payments called uh, Hoftoller or Temple Tax uh, are hard to find in the sagas. Mm -hmm. But uh, most of what we know of them actually comes from the post-Christianization sagas like this one. And what we know is precious little. Uh, The taxes don't seem to have been onerous. And in fact, there's been a longstanding argument among scholars about how chieftains managed to maintain temples and all the other expenses of being a Gothi. But even if the tax were only a token payment there's still a good reason for Thorleaf to avoid paying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we mentioned his nickname several times, but we should underline that Thorleaf is a Christian. Mm-hmm. There's a straightforward reason he's not paying dues at a pagan temple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, it's hard to imagine that the author means for us to be entirely sympathetic to Brodhelgi's plan here. Oh, come on now. What's a little financial support for polytheism among Christian friends? Well, it's apostasy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's accurate. (laughs) (laughs) But more importantly, it is also a chance to annoy Thorleaf. Yeah, but it's a bad plan from the start. Briefly, Brodhelgi sends a man named Stoutkettle 
to demand the dues from Thorleaf, but Thorleaf refuses to pay, so Kettle announces a suit against him. And when that's done, Kettle gets back in his ship, but Thorleaf asks him to stay the night because the weather is turning nasty. Wait a minute. So Kettle just summoned him to a lawsuit Mm -hmm. and he's asking him to sleep over the night to stay safe? Yep. Thorleaf Mm. is being shown to embody Christian virtues here. Yeah. And once again, we're seeing a scene that echoes the end of Njal's saga and Kari seeking shelter at Flosi's house. This is a bit of an aside, Mm -hmm. uh, which we do on Saga Thing. But uh, I wonder (laughs) how many episodes it's going to be before we can record one without a Njal Saga parallel cropping up. Yeah, I wouldn't hold my breath. I think our Mm. our hard drives have been permanently rewritten. (laughs) Well, anyway, it's a little different here. Kettle Mm -hmm. refuses the hospitality. He sets out in his ship, but is eventually blown back into port. And sheepishly, he's forced back into Thorleaf's house. Mm -hmm. He decides to stay with him anyway. Yeah. Now, that's a Thorleaf, unlike Gate here, is actually pretty good at predicting the weather. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's got to be an (laughs) awkward moment in the doorway. Not at all. I mean, Thorleaf is a perfect host. And after two days of (laughs) whining and dining Kettle, the storm ends. Kettle's free to go. But before he does, Kettle tells Thorleaf, you've proved the best of men. I will reward you for this by allowing the action against you to collapse. I will be your friend ever after. Your friendship seems to me worth a great deal, but it is unimportant whether your case against me collapses or not. I can call upon a comrade who will not let me suffer punishment. I can't tell if uh, Thorleaf is more of like a a wise turtle or an old tree. (laughs) I was reading Dr. Seuss to my kids before this. (laughs) It has an effect on people. Yeah, there you go. So a wise tree it is. All right. Uh, So I know we want to be getting on with the next section of the story, but this treatment of Christ as a powerful ally and a friend is is endlessly interesting to me. Yeah, it's a great dynamic in the sagas. It speaks to how Iceland made Christianity its own, in part by fitting it into pre-existing ideas about allegiance and friendship and social relationships and so on. And the result is so interesting because what you end up with is Christ having many of the same attributes as medieval saints, which is almost recursive, but not quite. The saints are supposed to have lived in imitation of Christ, so making Christ more like saints makes him into a kind of imitation of himself. (laughs) Okay. I I don't know where I'm going with this, but I want to dig into it more fully another time. No, which means you won't. But for now, let's wrap up this section. (laughs) Brodhelgi is angry when he learns of Kettle's deal with Thorleif, but that's it. With Mm -hmm. Christ for a friend, Thorleif is apparently untouchable. And in fact, he's now out of the saga. And meanwhile, the old friendship between Broadhelgi and Gator is definitely showing signs of strain. Both men now accuse the other of stealing some of Robin's treasures, and there are a couple of nasty scenes in public. Mm-hmm. Really, the only way things could get worse would be if one of them insulted the other one's sister or something. And <laughs> now we've mm. been reading ahead. Whoa. Part three. Bad bromance. These titles are increasingly worse than the ones before. (laughs) So this section of the saga sees the total collapse of Brodhelgi and Gator's relationship. (laughs) It's not as if their friendship isn't already cooling, right? True, but now things are going to get ugly fast. There are a lot of incidents in a row here, so we're going to be sort of lightning rounding this part. Uh, Okay, well, uh, who's going first then in this lightning round? 
Well, since you already teased the insult to Gator's sister, why don't you start with that? Okay, so we said earlier that Brodhelgi is married to Gator's sister, Hala. The mm-hmm. marriage seems reasonably happy, but Hala gets very sick. Mm-hmm. Um, she even predicts her own death in front of her husband. Right. But Helgi assures her that he will be happy in that marriage for as long as we are alive, which maybe is kind of a, an awkward mm-hmm. threat. Um <laughs> Conveniently, though, a young local widow named Thorgerd Silver invites Brodhelgi to visit her home. And by the end of the visit, they're engaged. Engaged. Yep. So, Brodhelgi's turning out to be something of a scoundrel. Absolutely. And when mm-hmm. word gets round about this, uh, everyone thinks it's a lousy thing to do. Which uh, well, Because it is. It's a terrible thing to do. His wife is still alive. But dying. Mm. <laughs> Oh my goodness! He's just planning for the future. Uh huh. Um, it's it's made worse by the fact that Hala is significantly more popular than Brold Helgi, mm-hmm. and obviously Gator and his brother Blang are angry about this treatment of their sister. Right. So this confrontation between Gator and Brold Helgi it might turn nasty fast. Oh, it might. Uh, but we actually don't know for sure. Um, this is actually the one of those gaps in the saga we warned about at the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. The narrative skips ahead here to after Hala and Gator are already on their way back home. Yeah, actually, this first missing piece isn't so bad. Just as the narrative picks up again, Gator turns back to Brodhelgi and asks, When will you pay over the money that is Hala's but is in your keeping? And Brodhelgi answers, It would be fine with me if Hala isn't happy at your farm once she gets there. She will yet return to me. <laughs> or will she? <laughs> yeah. In other words, he's not planning to return the money. Uh, we, we have to also say that Hala isn't all that concerned about it. Mm-hmm. She suggests that Helgi will come to his senses about this whole polygamy nonsense and that in the meantime, <laughs> my money will not grow less at his farm if it gains interest there. Now, now Hala Hel- didn't sound very sick there. I was expecting more of a consumptive quality. <laughs> <laughs> my money won't. Grow less at his farm. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're Emperor Palpatine after the fight with Mace Windu. <laughs> there uh, you go. You always got those Star Wars references absolutely. ready to go. Uh, so I read that as an attempt at keeping the peace. Right? Hala oh. has to know that she and Broad Helgi are through, right? I mean, she's just trying to avoid getting her brother and husband involved in a feud with each other. Well, given the behavior of some other women in the saga, I would say that that's possible. Uh, she's definitely right, though. Her money will earn more interest on Helgi's farm. So I, I think maybe she's just got a shrewd financial mind. But, yeah, whatever the case, any effort to head off a fight doesn't work. And Gator mm-hmm. and Brold Helgi have a series of legal conflicts over the dowry. Uh, each time Brold Helgi is able to win, first by physically overpowering Gator at the regional thing, then by leveraging the support of Guthman the Powerful at the All Things. It's kind of now, bringing in big players. This sounds like you're skipping over a bunch of really exciting stuff here, but you're really not. Uh, everything you just said is covered in one short paragraph in the saga. Yeah, one short paragraph. Mm-hmm. And, and and some of this is really stuff I want more detail on. I mean, there's a lawsuit that yep. ends when Gaetir's physically overpowered and prevented from attending. <laughs> that seems like a story worth telling. But uh, for this author, the important point is that after this, Brod Helgi and Gator are openly hostile to each other. It's, I mean, it sounds like they were openly hostile to each other during the lawsuit. But I would think so. I guess we'll never know. Yeah. Uh, so now they're looking for reasons to annoy each other. And the hostility starts to spill out to include the local community. Doesn't it always, though? Yeah, but we aren't always dealing with someone as aggressive as Brod Helgi. 
Uh, Helgi takes up a dispute on behalf of one of his followers, a man named Thord, against one of Gator's thingmen, Thormod Starbjarnason. The dispute is over a shared woodland, but Helgi escalates the conflict until he butchers all of Thormod's cattle and leaves their corpses lying in a field. Well, he, he doesn't just kill the cattle. He decapitates them. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> That's a hell of an escalation. It certainly is. Uh, we have to remember that even beyond the loss of the cattle, a slaughtering like this means that the meat isn't bled properly and will lose some value. To say nothing of the spoilage from leaving it out in the field. Is that how you read that? Yeah. Yeah, why? Well, for me, I mean, the saga actually mentions the meat. It says Helgi mm-hmm. sent men to Thormod and told him to check on his oxen, kind of snidely. Uh, and, and then it says, this was done and the meat was carried home. Mm-hmm. Did, did you read that reference to meat as a pun on the wasted corpse of the oxen? Or how do you do that? No, I think it's an accurate description of an animal once it's been slaughtered. Right? It's meat. It's just that meat comes in varying qualities. And, you know, properly prepared meat from a slaughtered animal involves bleeding the body so that the, the blood doesn't pool. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand that. But their heads were cut off. So presumably sure. they, they did lose a lot of blood. <laughs> they were bled well, properly. Sure. You know, so I I wonder if the if the meat was actually saved, but he did lose. I mean, I don't want to spend five minutes talking about the quality of the meat from slaughtered cattle, <laughs> but you would hang uh, an animal or uh, save its blood, if nothing else, right? The blood oh, itself is a valuable ingredient in cooking. Sure, maybe we could just take the meat from one side of the cattle. Would that oh, work? There you go. Anyway, all right, let's move on. So presumably Broad Helgi does this whole thing, knowing that Thormod will go to Gaetir to seek reprisals against him. Yeah, and it is against him because Mm -hmm. Broad Helgi absorbs Thord's entire household into his own as his price for getting involved. And that's a steep price. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to think that Broad Helgi isn't a terribly nice person. You're starting to think that. Mm-hmm. This uh, polygamous Norwegian murderer is <laughs> might not be a nice person. Uh, nice or not, he is undeniably effective. And Gator isn't eager to get dragged into a fight on Helgi's terms. So instead, he offers to pay Thormod for the meat. Oh, that's interesting because that implies that the meat wasn't usable. Interesting. Mm. But a nonviolent resolution isn't what Broad Helgi's looking for. So he ups the stakes. Mm-hmm. He and his men chopped down the entire woodland that Thormod and Thord had shared. <laughs> <laughs> now, Thormod, of course, goes again to Gator for help. Man. But all Gator does is advise him to bring his kinsmen and summons Thord for the illegal woodcutting. Well, Gator's starting to look awfully passive for a chieftain, if I'm being yeah. honest here. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, Helgi gets word that Thormod's coming to his farm and prepares his men for an attack. When mm-hmm. Thormod arrives and delivers the summons, Helgi's men attack. Thormod and some of his followers are killed in the ambush, and the rest ride away, leaving the bodies behind. Yes, so now blood has been spilled over this feud, mm-hmm. and the bodies give Helgi another chance to taunt Gaetir. He has them brought to a small enclosure, and then not buried. He just covers Ooh. them with piles of sticks. Yeah, not buried. This is getting serious, because that puts Helgi in violation of the rules governing killings and runs the risk of making this a murder situation. Well, sure, but only if someone can enforce the rules. Well, I mean, this latest outrage finally moves Gator to act. It's a little late, given that he mm-hmm. advised Thormod to go to the farm. But Gator decides on a trick instead of a brawl. He rides with a group of men to confront Helgi at home, 
but he warns them all in advance not to strike a blow unless they have to. His band instead spends a while at the border of Helgi's farm demanding satisfaction from Brodhelgi, who refuses and forbids them to take away the bodies. Yes, but this, this confrontation's briefly interrupted by a group of charcoal makers riding past with coal bins on their horses, but mm-hmm. everyone ignores them as they go past. And, and Gator is eventually forced to leave without the bodies. Not much of a trick, really. Doesn't yeah, work. N- hmm. Well, that's exactly what Broadhelgi thinks, and he's feeling pretty smug until he realizes that the bodies are all gone. Of course they are, because those charcoal makers were Gator's men, and the bins were used to smuggle out the bodies. Presto! It's a good trick after all. Wait, that was a cunning plan, and we didn't even set up the cunning plan. (laughs) You want to go add a cunning plan to this? No, no. It's just sad that we spent all this time trying to set up cunning plans (laughs) in previous episodes for cunning plans that don't work. And if we finally have one that does work, that was set out from the beginning... <laughs> it was and- such a good plan that it fooled us, too. No, it doesn't, because Gator <laughs> says at the very beginning of the plan, go out there with the charcoal bins, yeah. make sure they're clean, pick up the bodies while we distract him. We failed this. Like I like the make sure it was cl- they're clean. Like he's really yeah, right. Well, to this. You don't want a bunch of dead bodies covered in, uh, right. in coal. You, you don't want sooty corpses. Mm-mm. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Brodhelgi has to give Gator his due. It has always been the... Oh, wait, he talks like a brute, doesn't he? Yeah. It has always been the case that Gator was the wiser of us two, though he's always been overcome with superior force. (laughs) Why can't these two just work things out and go back to the good old days? Because they're both kind of jerks, John. Oh, right. Uh, And as if to remind us of that, Hala returns to the saga. Her illness is getting worse. And she sends for Broad Helgi one day when Gator is away from the farm. He comes to see her, but apart from helping to squeeze some fluid from an infection, he shows <laughs> little affection for her. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> I, I mean, how much more affection do you want if you got someone well, squeezing fluid from an infection? Well. Ugh. This is a subtle bit of work by the author, though. We're told mm-hmm. she greeted him warmly and he received her greeting warmly. Now, that's an economy of language, but it tells an entire story. Yes, it does. And Holler realizes she's being rejected. You have now really put this matter behind you. I do not imagine that many men would finish with their wives as you do with me. Wait, what happened to all the coughing and sputtering and... You want me to do that? Well, you criticize uh, me for reading her all saintly. <laughs> and Holler realizes she's being rejected. You have now really put this matter behind you. <coughs> I, I, did not, I did not imagine that many men would finish with their wives as you do with me. I think she should sound closer to death. Cough, Can you do cough? it again? <laughs> I will not. Your, your motivation here is you're, you're, you're as close to death as possible, but you're trying to win your husband back. You have really put this matter behind you. No, you're not Gollum. I do That's not imagine that many men of their wives as you do with me. Gollum. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, oh, you want right. me to Gollum it? I think you just did. Okay. I'm going to move on. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, Brodhelgi leaves as he would. Mm. <laughs> and Hala, I don't think you'll be surprised to hear this, dies shortly afterward. Uh, when Gator returns home, he learns of Helgi's visit and the poor treatment his sister received before she died. Uh, it turns out, actually, that Brodhelgi took her precious ring. Mm. He didn't, really. That was a... I'm ignoring you. 
<laughs> okay, I thought you were accepting that as, as no. true. <laughs> anyway, so he's furious. And uh, from this point on, there's no hope of reconciliation. Gator's finally ready to get serious about dealing with the Helgi problem. Yeah, well, and in a bit of bad timing for Broad Helgi, he and Goodman the Powerful have a falling out over some money that Helgi promised to Goodman and then refused to pay. Well, and in that moment, Goodman says, you're being a bad man, which I think is a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful moment in the saga. Well, he's the last man in Iceland to figure this out. Yeah. Broad Helgi is not a nice man. Uh, now, Goodman isn't willing to go so far as to openly support Gator either, but he's no longer backing Helgi's move, which makes things a bit more precarious for Helgi in his feud with Gator. Yeah. So now that Helgi's lost support, Gator can finally move against him, right? Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Well, I know the saga, so no, I wouldn't. But <laughs> I would expect him to. In fact, what happens is that Thorar and Aelson, one of the Stamjorn court descendants who are Thingmen of Gator comes to visit Iceland two summers in a row. He's a ship's captain. Mm -hmm. The first summer, he stays with Gator at Krosovik, despite Brodhelgi trying to convince Thorarin to stay with him. He doesn't just offer Thorarin a place to stay. It's yeah. clearly an attempt to pull an important Thingman away from Gator. Mm -hmm. Remember, Thingmen are free to switch their allegiances, and Brodhelgi really wants Thorarin's support. In fact, he even tries to bribe Thorarin with a gift of five horses. That's a lot of horses. It's quite a gift. But Thorarin sends them back after Gator expresses disapproval. Right. So Thorarin is still treating Gator as his chieftain. Mm -hmm. But that's the first summer. The next year, when Thorarin returns to Iceland, he discovers that Gator has moved away from the area to a remote farm farther from Broadhelgi. Thorarin ends up staying with his father instead, and the incident makes it pretty clear that Gator's supporters are losing respect for him over his failure to solve the Brodhelgi problem. Okay, uh, so can we talk about this passivity now? Yeah, sure. Uh, so there hasn't been a massive amount of work done on this saga. Yeah, it's actually a little surprising to me. Yeah. Uh, so, But there is a chapter in Jesse Byock's book, Viking Age Iceland, which we mentioned earlier, devoted to puzzling out this central feud between Brodhelgi and Gator. That's right. And we both read this over before sitting down, but uh, why, don't, why don't you set it up for the listeners? Okay. Um, for Bayok, this saga is about the ways in which power is dependent on a network of kin, thingmen, advocacy, and friendship ties. All right. Yeah, we mentioned that before. I'm, I'm buying that. Although the same could be said for almost every saga. It's one of mm -hmm. the core underlying themes of family sagas. Sure. But here's the interesting part. In Bayok's view... This feud closely resembles the feud of Erbija Saga, with Gator being a great deal like Snorri the Gothi, and Brodhelgi being similar to Arnkel Thorolfsson. Uh, uh, what? <laughs> Record scratch? Uh, hang on, wait a second there. Uh, say that again. I want to be sure everyone heard what you just said, the last part there. Yeah, Brodhelgi is similar to Arnkel Thorolfsson. Yeah, see, that's not true. <laughs> Arnkel, uh, my beloved Thingman, one of the leaders in the group, he's been doing really great, fantastic uh -huh. work. Uh -huh. uh, he, he was almost entirely and unerringly moral and a decent person. Uh, mm. And that's all the more remarkable, given the fact that his father was the evil Viking and undead monster Thorolf Twistfoot. Mm -hmm. um, if we review Broadhelgi's resume, 
He appears to be an avaricious, conniving, Norwegian-murdering, wife-abandoning backstabber. Um, and if anything, I think he's far more like Thorolf Twistfoot, or dare I say, Snorri Gothi, than Arnkill. Oh, oh, slander, sir. Mm. I mean, you're, you're laying it on a bit thick, but in principle, I agree that there's a big difference between Arnkell and uh, Broadhelgi. Yeah. But I kind of set you up a bit there. Uh, Bayok is really only making a comparison in their legal fortunes. Right, and to some degree that does make more sense, mm-hmm. uh, and we probably should have led with that. But oh, uh, where's the fun in that? Nah. Uh, now, like Arnkel, Broadhelgi is winning all these little victories against his adversary. Right? The court cases over the dowry, the cattle killing, the woodland. So he's winning the battles. But meanwhile, according to Bayok, Gaetir is making long-range plans and setting things up to win the war. In other words, wait for it, mm-hmm. he's got a cunning plan. Yes. And that's where I don't see the parallel as strongly. I just don't think Gator has that same sense of Machiavellian genius that Snorri Gothi's defining characteristic. Now who's laying it on thick? All right, all right, all right. Then how do you (laughs) see this feud playing out? So we're almost at the boiling point. How are we supposed to respond to the feud as it's been presented so far? Well, how much time do you have, John? (laughs) Not very much. Give me the 20-second version. I'll, well, I don't know if I can do 20 seconds, but I'll give you my short version. I, I feel like Gaetir and Brodhelgi are being set up as contrasting figures, and I don't think I'm the first to remark on that. Mm-hmm. If we look at the saga from start to finish, we can make the argument that Brodhelgi is everything that's wrong with the Viking Age. Mm-hmm. Gaetir, on the other hand, who he's by no means perfect, at least hints at the potential for other methods of conflict resolution, like avoiding it like the plague. He doesn't seem particularly eager to pursue a blood feud to me. He's forced into action by increasing pressure that his Thingman place on him. Fair enough. But even if you don't, if even if you don't like that reading, it's at least clear that the two men are contrasting figures in terms of ability. Mm-hmm. Brodhelgi is a man of action. Gaetir is a man of wisdom who's better at plotting than he's good at fighting. In, in that regard, I think he's he he is actually more like Snorri or perhaps Njal to some degree. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think the, the Gator and Snorri comparison is actually fairly apt. Yeah, it's I think the, that one works. It's the broad Helgi Arnkel one where you have to be very clear that it's only the legal fortunes yeah. that, that make them similar. Although I, um, I would say that, that Gator doesn't have the kind of avaricious kind of conniving quality. Oh, no, no, no. That no. So now, has. You're just, now you're just going to go ahead and start no, no, slandering no. my Thingman, and I won't I'm have not, it, sir. You know that I love Snorri, but that's one of the charming do. things about him is that yes. he's he's conniving and he's he he does want things and he well. I am going to say, I mean, we can say that Gator's not avaricious, but we have also said that we suspect him of being complicit in the murder of a Norwegian merchant in order to gain half of his stuff. But that's the only part of the saga where he does that kind of thing, and that's only so. How many how many Norwegians would he have to murder? <laughs> Before you would regard him as greedy. Well, he was a young man at the time. Uh, he saw the air of his ways. Uh-huh. Uh, no, I, I do think that Gator is a reluctant figure. I don't think he's maneuvering so much as being backed into a corner. Yeah. The fact that his thingmen are starting to whisper about his apparent cowardice suggests that if this is a cunning plan, it's one that he hasn't thought all the way through. Yeah. But, Although, but I think... Okay. It does point. It does point to another parallel. Remember, we saw Snorri having to put up with the same thing. His thingman starting to gossip at gatherings about Arnkel being a better chieftain because he's winning all these lawsuits against Snorri. Mm-hmm. Well, and the criticism that Snorri didn't avenge his father. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting, but but I think it does speak to the difficulty a man who might want to seek a peaceful resolution might face in this culture. 
If only something could be done to change that culture, John. If only. Hmm. Part four, the big lacuna. Yeah, uh, like I said, they're getting worse each time. But do you, do you want to explain <laughs> that? It's a play on words, Andy. Big kahuna, big lacuna. Oh, no, John. Sadly, I did get that. <laughs> um, I was wondering if maybe you want to explain lacuna for our audience. Oh, uh, no, you go ahead. All right, lacuna matata. I'll sit here and enjoy a sip of my beer while you do. I don't know why. I mean, you introduced it, so you should have to do it. But I'll do it because you're making me. You just drink your beer. Are you holding my beer? Sit back and drink it. Um, So uh, for those of you who don't know, a lacuna is a gap or a missing section of a text. It's not all that uncommon to find information missing from manuscripts uh, from the Middle Ages or from the classical period. But uh, as we said at the beginning, this saga is missing an important bit. And uh, we're going to do the best we can. But a fair amount of this part of the saga is either gone or has been partially reconstructed from a damaged sheet of vellum. Right. This doesn't mean we get to make up our own version of the story. No, it doesn't. But uh, the narrative picks up again after a couple of chapters. So all we have to do is make a few inferences about how we get from A to C. And I'm pretty sure B goes right in between. There you go. All right, let's do it. So at this point in the saga, the pressure's really on both men. Yeah, I don't think their situation is equally bad, but neither of them is having a great year. Well, Brodhelgi's lost his strongest ally in Goodman the Powerful by not paying him the money that he was due. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Gaetir's reputation starting to suffer among his own thingmen, so neither is doing well. Right. I think it's fair to say that Gaetir is in deeper trouble. Hmm. His thingmen actually convene a secret meeting where they agree to deliver an ultimatum to Gaetir. Now, Thorarin Aelson is the spokesman, and I think we can let him speak for himself. How long must things go on like this? <laughs> How many? <laughs> he sounds like Goofy in the uh, in uh, the Christmas story. I, I can give you a Cameron calling the head of the school in First Bueller's Day Off. I I know. How you can. long must things go on like this? How many men are leaving you and all going over to Helgi? And we reckon that your cowardice is the only reason you hold yourself back from attacking him. There are now two choices facing us. Either you return to Krosovic and take on Helgi if he does you any dishonor from now on. Otherwise, we'll all sell our farmsteads and move away. Some from the district, <laughs> others from the island completely. <laughs> well done, Cameron. And, you know, that certainly... Thank you. That certainly is blunt. Yeah. Uh, and th- are we actually going to go... <laughs> oh, yeah, we're <laughs> we using that. that voice? We're going to use that. <laughs> uh... Well, this actually is an interesting parallel to Snorri Goethe's situation with Arnkel, right? I mean, it, it never goes as far as Gator's problem. But as I said before, Snorri does have to deal with gossip that Arnkel is the better chieftain. I, I would argue with those thingmen and other gossipers that Arnkel is the better chieftain. You would be wrong. But uh, Thorarin's right. With, with the amount of freedom Icelanders had to shift allegiances, there's no reason to continue following a Goethe who's unable to stand up for himself or his men. And even after he gets this dressing down from Thorarin, Gator is still cautious. Rather than return to Krosovik, he goes on a trip to meet secretly with Gudman the Powerful and Olvir the Wise. Mm-hmm. It's all kept very vague, but by the end of his trip, he seems to have tacit support from both men to take on Brodhelgi. And when you think about it that way, this starts to feel very much like a mobster movie. Mm-hmm. The various bosses are all giving their approval to have a rogue member of the organization killed. 
you know, I, I actually I think you could absolutely take the plots of like half of the sagas and turn them into mobster movies with minimal changes. Half of them have even got mobster style nicknames already. True. Yeah. Snorry fingers. Uh, but mob <laughs> movies aside, this slow build up also reinforces a theme we talked about earlier. Which is? Well, the way that Gator's preparedness for his life as a chieftain gives him an advantage over Brodhelgi. Mm-hmm. Right. Brodhelgi's undeniably effective and he's dominant in the short term, but he doesn't seem to fully understand the nuances of the game of honor he's playing. He's being too aggressive, too quickly, and too widely. In other words, he's becoming the epitome of the Oyafnathramadar. Or uh, we mentioned this, so you got to go back to episode two the mm-hmm. uneven handed man. Right, exactly. Helgi's relative social isolation leaves him at a disadvantage against a well-connected, wealthy political leader like Gator. Gator's always got his finger on the pulse of popular opinion, especially the opinions of other leaders in the community. So, now that the godfathers have all given their approval, <laughs> Gator can finally do something, right? Uh, yeah. He moves back to Krosovik. And still he waits. And still he waits. That could be the title of this kind of modern <laughs> reimagining of this saga. Right. And still he waits. The saga of Gator and Broad Elgi. <laughs> um, no, so no wonder his thingmen are frustrated with him, though. I, I'm frustrated with him, and I'm just reading this thing. Yeah, it feels deliberate. I think the author's making a point about the difference between the rashness of Broad Helgi and the methodical slowness of Gator. I think we're probably supposed to respect Gator for his cool-headedness. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I felt like that at the beginning, but at this point, I'm starting to wonder, mm. you know, are we supposed to respect him or are we supposed to look at him as a, a weak figure who just doesn't have the balls to act? I think ultimately we're, we're, we see that it plays out for him yeah. that this tack is rewarded. Mm-hmm. Um, now, admittedly, bad things are going to happen to him after that, but... What he's doing here is working. It's just frustrating to watch. But there's so many easier solutions that he could take to resolve this problem. He's got the support of so many men all throughout Iceland that he could solve the problem at any point that he wants to, but he continues to wait. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, one thing that this delay seems to accomplish is to convince Brod Helgi that he has nothing to fear from his former friend. The right. two of them actually make plans to travel together to the local assembly. Right. Now, neither of these guys has a large retinue at this point, so traveling together, I guess, makes sense, except that they can't stand each other. But they do still have points of contact. I mean, for example, Brodhelgi's son, Bjarni, is the foster son of Gaetir, so they're, they're working together right. in some ways. And Bjarni's also his nephew, right, because Bjarni's mother was Gator's sister, Hala. Sure. Yeah, I don't I don't even know how to process that at this moment. But uh, <laughs> uh, but Bjarni rides ahead with most of the family supporters, leaving Brod Helgi to lead a group of men that includes his other son, Luting, Luting's foster father, Eolf the Fat, a Norwegian named Cole, and Helgi's second wife, Thorgerd Silver, and their daughter, Halbera. Uh, and Gator has a band of 11 men riding with him, including Thorarin Eilson and his brothers Halbjorn and Throst, and Tjorvi the Tall, the man who may or may not have killed Robin the Norwegian. So mm-hmm. when the two groups get together... Wait, um, doesn't Brodhelgi hear a prophecy warning him about Gator? Sort of. Yeah, we should cover that. Yeah, Helgi's mm. foster mother is a sometime prophetic woman who is discovered crying over a vision she's had. It's a vision of a white bull that is killed by a flecked bull. And then a red bull with bone-white horns gouges the flecked bull. Mm-hmm. And then a bull the color of sea cattle appears and runs bellowing and searching for the red bull. 
but cannot find it. Ah, uh, yes, the modified dream vision. It mentions sea cattle. Mm-hmm. What are, uh, yeah. you know? I, I grew up in Florida, so I think of mm-hmm. sea cattle, sea cows as manatees. What what exactly are we talking about? Right. Right? I'm assuming like seals. I mean, right. It, it could be. I mean, it's it's difficult to know exactly what the author in the saga is referring to. Right. There's an animal called the Stellar's sea cow. It's an extinct uh, relative of the manatee that lived mostly in the Bering Sea, from what I know. Really, it's not terribly close to Iceland, but. Um, it's hard to know what the author's referring to here. Seal or some kind of walrus, maybe. Uh, but, uh, yeah, a sea mammal of some kind. Weird. Now, I have to assume that you looked that up ahead of time, because if you pulled that off the top of your head, I'm going to be very upset. Well, I'm a big fan of the manatee, you know. Uh, <laughs> also known as the dugong or the sea cow. Um, this is a request for either Robert Boyle or Mark Clark, my my artists who listen to the the, the podcast. If you could create a an image of John, and underneath it, it would say, I'm a big fan of the manatee, you know, something like that. And then we could sell that at our store. Because <laughs> lots of people would buy that. Um, all right. So <laughs> I guess we'll move on. Um, I do like that the dream about Brodhelgi's death uses bulls goring each other to make its point. It's it's a nice mm. callback to the, the Ice Spur days, kind of where the saga began True. with the nickname. So, do we have to talk about this dream? You don't like those dreams, do you? No. Uh, I recognize they're an important plot device, but on a purely personal level, I don't like them. Uh, the interpretations are always so arbitrary, and yet people never have much trouble figuring them out. Right, take this one. So, the white bull is broad Helgi for some reason. The flecked one represents Gator, and the red bull represents a refreshing energy drink. Boo. Just a boo. <laughs> you deserve a boo. Maybe a hiss. A rotten tomato or two? Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, no, the Red Bull represents Brodhelgi's son, uh, Bjarni, and the sea cattle-colored bull is Gator's son, Thorkel. But, I mean, why is that what the dream means? Right? It always seems to me the real magic of dream visions is the arbitrary ability of people to understand them correctly. I could go into a whole thing on medieval dream interpretation. Please manuals. don't. Please, please don't. Yeah, I won't. I won't. Thank you. Yeah, these elements can be jarring for a modern reader, but they most likely indicate the place of of fate in the imagination mm-hmm. of the authors even whether Agreed. you're whether they're christian or pagan uh, th- yeah. that that plays an important role in the way that right. they kind of constructed their lives right it's also a way of imposing causality on historical events yes uh, i do have to say though that i like that saga dreams are sometimes not totally determinate in this case broadhelgi tries to interpret the dream but he gets it partly wrong he thinks that the red bull represents his son looting but his foster mother tells him it represents his other son, Bjarni. Well, remember, Brodhelgi admitted that he's not terribly smart, but he's good at fighting. Right. <laughs> he also, the uh, the uh, author uh, admits for us that Luting is his favorite son. He's not actually that fond of Bjarni. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so so Helgi now has a warning that Gator is going to try to kill him. Presumably, uh, he's going to be on his guard. Mm-hmm. But he still goes ahead with the plan to ride with the uh, Gator's party, which I don't think is a good idea. Well, I mean, as we said, this is a matter of fate, right? You don't do anything to try to evade your fate. Well, you uh, could be like so, Gunnar and you, you see your fate in front of you, but mm-hmm. you confront it like a man. Well, and that appears to be what he's doing. So our foes are together at last. And then what? Well, and then uh, nothing. Emptiness. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. A void, if you will. Uh, uh-huh. We've reached the large gap in the story. 
uh, the piece that's missing from all the surviving versions of the sagas is right yeah. here at and this very this important is spot. Probably the main reason more people don't read this saga because the missing piece is the big set piece battle for the saga. At some point on the road to or from the assembly, a fight breaks out between the two groups of men and some of them are killed. Yeah. But we don't know who starts it or why or even how many people are killed. Body count suffers for this. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, but what we do know is that Brodhelgi is killed in this fracas. Well, sure. There was a dream about it. White bull, remember? Flecked bull. Red bull. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, we, we, we know that because when the story picks up again, it's in the middle of the legal settlement for the battle. And mm-hmm. even that part is patchy because we're relying on a single damaged sheet of vellum for the text here. There are words and phrases missing here or, or they're totally illegible, making it very difficult to understand what happens. Uh, this is so infuriating. All that build up, we don't even get to see the final showdown. Yeah, and... I think most people who read this saga get to this point and are looking forward to the showdown, probably hoping for Brodhelgi's comeuppance. It's, it's a horrible letdown. Yeah. And what's particularly frustrating is that the next sequence of actions by the characters then are hard to understand because they're predicated on whatever happened during that missing battle sequence. Okay, but here's where we get to have some fun. What mm-hmm. do we think happened? Hmm. Okay, well, when we pick things up again, Goodman the Powerful is making a peace settlement between the two sides. Of course he is, oh, just inserting yeah. himself at a moment. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, remember, we saw we saw that Gator had a private conversation with him uh, earlier in the year, yeah. possibly setting this up. Uh, now, only Broadhelgi's death is specifically discussed for compensation purposes, but other sources indicate that Helgi's son, Luting, was also killed in the fight. Oh. There might be other deaths, but if so, they aren't mentioned in the surviving pieces of the saga. I feel like it makes sense that Luting would be killed there because he was the favorite. Presumably, yeah. he would be the one to pursue the vengeance, but then Bjarni kind of steps right. up. Right, and it's kind of foreshadowed when the uh, when when uh, Brodhelgi says, oh, well, my son Luting would avenge me. Yeah, he's a wonderful guy. Says, yeah, no. <laughs> he's going down with the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as far as we can tell, though, the only judgments are against Chori the Tall, who's outlawed from the district, and Gator, who has to pay 130 pieces of silver in compensation for Brodhelgi. Right. So if we're making a guess, it looks like Gator and his men got the drop on Brodhelgi's party. At least two men were killed, and probably at least one of them by Chori the Tall. Now, a few other men who were there aren't mentioned again, but we can't be sure whether they were killed or they're just out of the saga. And it looks like the fight was a clear win for Gaetir, or at least there's no indication of any losses on his side. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Goodman the Powerful is adjudicating the settlement after Gator spoke secretly with him before the assembly time suggests that Gator's got everything squared away. It, it depends somewhat on what you assume was happening during the missing pieces of this, of this text. Uh, but it's starting to look like Gator's been working behind the scenes to set all of this up, which... Yeah, mm-hmm. it's very kind of Snorri well, Goethe-esque. Right. And now this is where I really see that parallel to Snorri Goethe yep. that we talked about earlier. Absolutely. That's how I read it, too. I mean, I, I'm also assuming they, they fought right away since Gator probably would have taken advantage of the greater numbers in his party. And if you read that section yeah, where they're setting logical. up the meeting, uh, it, it feels like mm-hmm. they're feeling each other out and Gator's right. setting How many men are up. you bringing? They, they, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm going to ride with just a few men. Me too. Just a few men. We're friends, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Just me and my grandma. <laughs> so for this next section, we're doing our best. Uh, we consulted a couple of translations as well as the original text 
So while there's a bit of guesswork, we're hopefully not too far off. So first of all, apart from his surviving son, Bjarni, uh, no one seems all that upset about the death of Brod Helgi, which, you know, well, I think we aren't surprised by. Uh, Jonas Christensen calls Helgi the canker at the core of the story. And, and <laughs> exactly. And that's more or less how everyone reacts. Like, like a painful sore is gone. Mm-hmm. You know, I seem to recall someone trying to finagle choosing Broad hmm. Helgi as Thingman hmm. during our Thorsty in the White episode. Now, was that you? Finagling a choice? No. Yeah, I have been advised by my attorney not to answer any questions about that at this time. I see. Mm -hmm. Well, we can save that for the judgment section. Yeah. Uh, But Christensen seems to be right. I mean, that compensation number is certainly an indication of people's contempt. 130 silver for a chieftain. That's definitely lowballing it. Yeah, yeah. We, we, We can't be sure about whether something else is being used to offset some of the value, like an injury or a death among Gator's men, but but definitely isn't a compliment to Helgi. Yeah. No, I know, I know 130 is anything to sneeze at, but in other sagas, 200 is the standard price for a killing. I feel like we're almost in like Han Solo flipping a coin to the Mos Eisley bartender territory here. Did, did Helgi shoot first, John? Well, I mean, thanks to the lacuna, we'll never know. <sighs> Maybe we can get George Lucas to digitally alter the gap in the manuscript. <laughs> Maybe throw in like a few more CGI monsters while he's at it. Some dancing, singing, yeah. thing, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't think so. I think there are exactly the right number of do-backs in this saga already. Uh, I.e. none. <laughs> Besides, there's already a saga version of Star Wars out there. Uh, it would be redundant to go into it. That's true. Uh, yeah, if anybody doesn't know about that, it's called uh, Tatooine Darla Saga, and it's definitely worth a Google. Have we ever mentioned that before? I don't think we have. Uh, I, I'm surprised because I get links to it from listeners all the time. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, so you you brought up money. And we should say that the compensation economics are a little off kilter all the way through this whole saga. Compared to other sagas, you mean? Yeah, I mean, later on, we're going to see 100 pieces of silver accepted as the price for a Govi's death, which, I mean, either everyone's giving discounts in this saga or the author is just reckoning Guild differently. Come on down to Berserker Eddie's Guild warehouse for the best compensation prices in the East Fjords. <laughs> if you're slashing neighbors, we're slashing prices. Berserker Eddie. I mean, you did that really well. That's right. All the We've got steep discounts on chieftains, chieftain sons, Christian women, freemen, <laughs> sorceresses, and hired workers. You can't afford not to kill someone. <laughs> Are you uh, done yet? Uh, act now and we'll throw in a free Norwegian companion with every compensated Icelander. <laughs> uh, and now I'm done. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know how other people feel, but I think that's probably the best thing you've ever done on this podcast. <laughs> So sad. Uh, and I also... I mean, I've done actual research for some of this. <laughs> I don't know where you came up with that, but uh, I'm suspecting that you have more free time than a scholar with two young children should. Anyway. Actually, I grew up uh, in New York where the crazy Eddie commercials were on all the time. And I just... Uh, I think anybody who saw those commercials can just channel that guy at a moment's yeah. notice. Uh, so you said uh, Bjarni is understandably upset about the death of his father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he focuses that anger on Tjorvi the Tall. Uh, just to refresh everyone's memory, whose son is Bjarni? Helgi. Exactly. Right. But uh, Tjorvi's <laughs> been outlawed, so he's on his way out of town. So he's been given until the moving days to relocate out of the district, and he sold his farm and packed everything up. But Bjarni gets word that Tjorvi is prepared to leave, and he rides out alone to pay him a visit. 
Jarvis heading for his horse when he sees Bjarni riding across the heath, and he turns to run back into his house. But Bjarni's mm-hmm. horse is too fast, and Bjarni spears Tjorvi through the back. Again, we're not sure why Tjorvi is targeted, but it sure looks like Bjarni has just avenged either his brother or his father. And Gator once again shows that for Barons, that is his chief trait. He pays for Tjorvi's burial, but never charges Bjarni with the killing. And the two of them, Bjarni mm-hmm. and Gator, continue to see each other socially. How sweet. Which is a little weird, but we have to remember that Gaetir is Bjarni's foster father and yeah. his maternal uncle. Exactly. Right? By Icelandic standards, they're almost as close as a parent and child. And and it looks as if Bjarni intends to let the matter lie there, at least at first. Oh, at first. Is that ever not an ominous phrase? Yeah. In this case, it's only an assumption. Uh, we don't really know for sure what Bjarni intends. Well, saga figures are famously inscrutable at the best of times, and the gaps in the manuscript are not making this any easier. No. Right. Uh, But what we know is that someone, a woman in Bjarni's household... Right. Probably a stepmother. Yes. uh, Most likely a stepmother, Thorgard Silver. She gives Bjarni a cloak to wear on a snowy winter day, uh, but it's cut to pieces and probably bloodstained. The indications are that it's the cloak Brodhelgi was wearing when he was killed. Sure. I mean, we've seen that trope a number of times, mm-hmm. right? Erbija Saga, Njal Saga, and a few others have this moment when a female relative uses the dead man's clothing to shame a male relative into taking vengeance. Yes, and Bjarni reacts angrily to being goaded, and he actually strikes the woman. Mm. But he also grabs a wood axe Boom, and heads Bjarni. off at once. Mm. Now, I'm beginning to see the family resemblance. Right? He definitely shares a few personality traits with his father, Brodhelgi. Uh, but we should say that better men than Bjarni have found this kind of thing to be more than they can say no to. Yeah, you can understand why it's an effective tactic. It's hard to ignore. And it's got overtones of that cultural belief that a person who involved himself in settling a slain man's body, uh, if he picked up the weapon used to kill the man, or sometimes if he's closed the victim's eyes and mouth or nostrils, um, if he did those mm-hmm. things, he made himself responsible for avenging the killing. Right, that's a good point. Uh, So, Bjarni's been shamed for not avenging his father, who was killed by his mother's brother. Now, this is starting to sound like Snorri Gothi's story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's another interesting parallel, but but of course, this is where the parallel ends. Because they aren't actually in similar circumstances otherwise. Yeah, because unlike Snorri, Bjarni's actually going to do something about it. Oh. Oh. I'm going to follow Snorri's example and ignore your attempts to bait me. It's because you're weak. Uh, so, <laughs> like Snorri Gothi. So, uh, um, so what exactly is Bjarni going to do? Well, he's attending a winter assembly where Gator, as a chieftain, will also be in attendance. Some of the details of what happens next are a little bit fuzzy, but uh, I mean, remember, we're still in the damage section of the text here. Um, mm-hmm. But but the essence of it is this, that Bjarni arrives in an ill humor carrying his wood axe. And this doesn't strike anyone as odd. Uh, what doesn't strike anyone? The the wood axe? Well, yeah. I mean, that that combined with the tension crackling off of him <laughs> and the way that he keeps staring at Gate here and making a throat-slitting gesture when he thinks no one's looking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. you made that last part up. That didn't happen. Yes, I did. <laughs> but hey, Lacuna, who knows what we're missing? Eh, it could be there. So uh, Gate here and Bjarni begin to chat at the meeting. Uh, there's some awkward moments and Bjarni eventually gets up and begins to pace. He says, my foot has gone to sleep, which I just want to remark on the the fact that I've never in, in all of medieval literature read anything, any reference to a body part falling asleep. 
but it's such a common human yeah. thing. Yeah. And here we have in an Icelandic saga a reference to a foot going to sleep. It's brilliant. Right. Right. Of course, he's lying. <laughs> oh, well, you know, whatever. So the one time it's mentioned. Uh, and uh, Gator's response is, well, you should lie still then, which are some strange last words. Uh, last words. Nice uh, yeah. nice foreshadowing. Well, they're going to have to do because Bjarni now attacks Gator. Uh, attacks is a generous way to put it. He bashes him over the head, presumably with the wood axe, oh. and Gator dies on the spot. Can I just say I feel bad for Gator? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't die instantly, though. You know? Mm-hmm. Knowing Gator, he probably thought about it for a while, met with his thingman, checked to make sure it was okay with the other chieftains in the area. Then he, and then, then, died. Then, then he died slowly after that. <laughs> right. That's some industrial-grade snark for poor Gator. Show <laughs> some respect for the departed. Well, how's this? Once the deed is done, Bjarni is immediately overcome with remorse... And he sits with Gator's head in his lap for a while. Well, I mean, that's sweet. But maybe it would have been nice to consider the consequences before cleaving your foster father's head open. Eh, details, John. They're details. But the important thing is that Bjarni's thinking about them now. Not for Gator, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> True. Well, there is a learning curve on this sort of thing, you know. Uh-huh. So the next time Bjarni is goaded to kill his uncle, he'll know better? Yeah. Yeah, he's got other uncles, right? Oh, um, it'll be a tremendous consolation to bl- to Blang. <laughs> right. Um, he, he also demonstrates his remorse by going home and throwing Thorgood Silver out of the house, mm-hmm. uh, which reinforces our assumption that she was the one pushing him into taking revenge. Right, but that's not going to undo the damage that Bjarni's done to his reputation. Oh, no, but uh, that's a problem for later. Part 5. The Sins of the Fathers. Okay, it's later. And Bjarni's got a real problem on his hands. Well, he's committed a killing within his own family, and that's always messy. I agree, but our author totally ignores that aspect of things. It's one of the real weaknesses of this saga. I had to check my genealogical notes twice just to make sure I wasn't misremembering their relationship because it simply never comes up that Bjarni is Gator's nephew. Yeah, the the author's actually more interested in the fact that Bjarni was foster son to Gator. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, even that isn't made into a major theme. So, I mean, if that's not the problem, what is? Well, Gator was riding a wave of popularity for eliminating Helgi. So this killing goes over like a skunk in church. Oh, uh, yeah. Bjarni's condemned by everyone in the district. And he's so unpopular that he has to hire a man named Burning to roam the area and sniff out plots against him. And the obvious source of a threat would either be uh, Gator's brother, Blang, or his his son, Thorkel. And right. Thorkel's just returned to Iceland after a long trip to learn of his father's death. Yeah, he's playing it cool, but Thorkel is obviously going to be seeking the same sort of revenge that Bjarni wanted for the death of his father. Of course, and Bjarni knows that. So he sends some mutual friends to speak with Thorkel, and he even offers himself judgment in the suit for his father. Yeah, and self-judgment's a big deal, and it's a big risk for Bjarni, right? There are a few limits on what a person can award himself, and Bjarni could face the loss of his farm or even outlawry. But the friends return with even worse news. When they made the offer to Thorkel, he continued talking as if he didn't hear them. Mm-hmm. Which is a pretty clear sign, either that Thorkel's deaf, 
or that nothing short of blood <laughs> vengeance will satisfy him. That's right. And and during the next few months, Bjarni and Thorkel are playing a cat and mouse game with one another. Mm. Thorkel has a man named Cole moving around and gathering information and support for him uh, in a move against Bjarni. But Bjarni has his own informants. Uh, chief among them is a local healer named Thorvart of Sirikstadr. Right Now, this part has a lot of movement and misdirection, but the upshot is that Thorkel is building support in a pretty standard way, using his position and the general sympathy of the locals to his advantage, but acting without his father's subtlety. Yeah, that's true, actually. Gator was careful to establish his support through quiet conversations and indirect statements, mm-hmm. um, thus the snorri Gothi parallels. Right. Uh, while, while Thorkel is just sending a, a runner out to say, Hey! Let's all go and kill Bjarni. <laughs> a runner from South Brooklyn, apparently. Yeah. He's getting support, but he, he's not being super discreet about this. Yeah, I agree. But, I mean, what would discreet look like in this situation? Hey, let's all go kill Bjarni, but, you know, casual-like. Let's let's not make a big thing of it. Hey, you know who's definitely not getting killed next week? Bjarni. You know what I mean? Wink, wink. Huh? <laughs> Yeah, no, he's he's pretty overt. Uh, yeah. And Bjarni takes advantage of that, right? He's learning of Thorkel's plans through intermediaries. Mm-hmm. And through his own network and by spreading rumors that he's got a large force of men at his farm, he's able to keep Thorkel off his back for most of the winter. Well, anyway, it's an interesting move into the next generation. Bjarni's far more nimble and clever than his troublemaker of a father. And Thorkel has his father's popularity, but not as cunning. True. And in Bjarni's family in particular, there's no through line to the personalities at all. I mean, if we go back a few generations, Bjarni's father is Broad Helgi, who we've seen was a blunt force personality whose effectiveness came from rushing directly at challenges. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And, and Helgi's father was Thorgils, who we met in Thorstein the White Saga. Um, he was a brave and fair-minded man who, who simply got caught up in the troubles of lesser men and then was destroyed by them. Right, and his father was Thorstein the White himself who was renowned for his kindness, wisdom, and authority, but who had no particular reputation as a warrior to speak of. Yeah, it's quite a family. Apples falling quite far from the tree all over the place in there. Apples in Iceland? Oh, it's one of those metaphors you hear so much about. Oh, one of those. Uh, Anyway, another thing happens during this part of the story. We've reached the end of the damaged section of the saga. Huzzah! Yay! Yes, we can finally stop offering baseless conjecture about what's happening in this story and start offering baseless conjecture about what's actually happening. Well, that's where we're at our best. I mean, Mm -hmm. no one conjectures baselessly better than the boys of Saga Thing. That's right. And uh, just in time for the story to completely lose nearly all of its momentum. Yeah, lucky us, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Fortunately, it's not a permanent problem, but... We do get a strange cameo at this point from two cousins of Thorkel's, the Droplaugersons, uh, Helgi and Grimm. Yes, and their connection is that their mother, Droplaug, uh, and Thorkel's mother, Halkatla, are actually sisters, uh, mm-hmm. which is mentioned in the string of genealogies in Chapter 3 of this saga. Right, and when they come to visit at Thorkel's invitation, he tells them that he's frustrated with his inability to attack Bjarni, and he intends to visit Hoth and attack Bjarni with fire if we can't do it with weapons. So we're talking about a farm burning here. Yep. Yeah, see, that's not good. We've seen that. Yeah, it's not good. Uh, killing an enemy by burning his farm is I mean, its morally repugnant, it's legally risky, and it's almost inevitably messy. Yeah, sure. You, you never know who else is in the house, right? 
-hmm. and collateral damage tends to be quite high. So be careful. It does send a message that a man has made the kind of enemies who tend to get sloppy when they're angry, which can serve a purpose in terrorizing people. But it also tends to turn local opinion against you. Uh, Yeah, for some reason. Um, but, But I think that's the point here, right? Thorkel's been frustrated in his attempts to avenge his father, and that's a dangerous situation. Uh-huh. Well, he's committed now, I mean, there's no way to back out. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the only way to stop this from happening would be uh, for Thorkel to, I don't know, suddenly get sick for no particular reason. Yeah, what are the odds of that? Uh, pretty fair, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'd be right about that. Um, Thorkel has a sickly constitution which we've never heard about before and which never comes up again. Mm-hmm. And on the morning plan for the raid, we're told he's too ill to get out of bed. Yeah, when I read this, it felt like a cop-out to me. Yeah. Now, but here's the question. Is it a cop-out by the author or by Thorkel? Hmm. Are we supposed to see this as a triumph of the better angels of Thorkel's nature? Or is it just a ham-fisted moment from an author who wants to tease the possibility of a burning without having to pay it off? Or is it just an excuse... For the Drop Lagersons to cameo in the saga. See, now I remember this from school. When in doubt, always go for either C or Mm. all of the above. Mm. (laughs) Uh, If my students are listening to this, don't do that. (laughs) You give uh, Scantron tests? (laughs) Because I do not. I I never get to do that. Which is why answering C is not going to help. (laughs) Right. It's a very (laughs) terrible answer answer. to an essay question. (laughs) Yeah. Well, anyway. I'm certain that the author sees the value in dropping a Drop Loggerson cameo in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether Thorkel's chickening out or if he's got a legitimate reason to miss the fight, that is open for discussion. Yeah, well, fortunately for our story, Thorkel is still resolved to do something about Bjarni. Mm-hmm. And he chooses the spring gathering of the Fjordstal Assembly as his moment to act. Well, not at the gathering, though. Uh, mm-hmm. These guys are both Gothar now, and attacking right. each other at their thing would destabilize the entire region. Very bad, bad politics to do that. Right. No. Uh, Thorkel waits until the assembly is over, right after the weapon take, and he plans to attack Bjarni as he travels home. Now, both men have friends and followers with them. Thorkel is leading a group of 15 men, including his uncle Blang and the Aelsons, uh, Thorarin Aelson and his two brothers. Bjarni has 18 men total, including his spy Burning, Thorvard the Healer, Eilif Torvason, and Bjarni's foster son Skivi. Now, there's a fair amount of business going on in the lead up here, including Bjarni's uh, continued use of tricks to try to evade Thorkel. Mm-hmm. But the two groups finally meet at a farm owned by a man named Avent. Yeah, the attack when it finally comes is a full scale brawl. And this fight is actually attested in multiple other sagas, so we can actually cross-check as needed. Over 30 men are fighting in the field, but the two groups are so evenly matched that for a while, neither side loses any men. But exhaustion begins to set in, people start to make mistakes, and then people start to die. After a saga in which there's been far more threats of violence than actual violence... This is a pretty shocking fight. Mm-hmm. Thorkel's uncle Blang is matched with Bjarni's spy Berning, uh, and he eventually hacks Berning down. So long, Berning the spy. We'll miss your vaguely defined character. <laughs> and then Blang attacks Bjarni, and he lands a clean blow on his chest, but it hits a necklace given to Bjarni by his sister Thordis Toda. It's convenient. Yeah, the necklace, it, well, it's not as good as a rock down the pants. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but much easier to carry around. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. 
The necklace shatters, but Bjarni escapes with only a scratch. And then Bjarni and Blank fight for a while with great ferocity until Bjarni kills Blank. Mm, now, Thorkel and Bjarni then fight as well, but Thorkel is wounded in the arm and has to leave the fight. Meanwhile, several more men are killed, including both the sons of Buahali, a friend of Bjarni's. The final total is eight men killed and two men badly hurt. Mm-hmm. Thorkel and then Eilif Torfason. Now, Thorkel's arm is badly wounded, but uh, what about Eilif? Well, that's a good question, and I really want to be able to answer it. Right? People know I'm interested in disability, and this is a fascinating hint. The short version is his injuries are severe enough that his future is apparently compromised. Right? The author says, Eilif fell at the hands of Holbjorn, but he lived on, if one could call that living. Mm, that sounds like a, uh, a bad conclusion. Yeah, I've got some tentative thoughts about this injury. I mean, there's no indication of what the injury is, just that it apparently results in substantial impairment. Um, and I could really, I'd love to explore this, but I don't want to get too far away from the narrative. So I'll Also, save you don't his, know. Well, no, I'm going to save the discussion of his injuries for the judgment section. Oh, you do have a, a yeah, sense see? of See? Oh, interesting. All don't right. You, uh, don't but, you. How dare you? <laughs> so uh, Thorwald the Healer takes care of Bjarni's men, and cares for Ailey for a time. Uh, but Bjarni hears that Thorkel's arm isn't healing well, and so he sends Thorvald to help. Right. Well, he sends his healer to help repair the arm of the man who just tried to kill him. Is that a problem? Well, I mean, depending on your perspective, that is the problem. I mean, why help Thorkel, the guy well, who just tried to kill you? We haven't actually seen Bjarni act as the aggressor toward Thorkel. Right. I mean, this is his opportunity to build up social capital and with any luck to bury the hatchet. Um, isn't burying the hatchet in Thorkel's father's head how <laughs> Bjarni got into this trouble? <laughs> I see what you did there. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, Thorwald is a talented doctor and he soon has Thorkel on the mend, which is nice. But mm. the I, I'm curious about the you know, doctors in this time. What is it that they did? You know, aside from right. looking at pee well, and tasting it. Well, <laughs> He's a healer. He knows how to help heal things. <laughs> right. I've got some weeds we can pack onto that. They don't wound. go into detail about medicine usually in the sagas. No, no. You need uh, Bald's Leech Book to get a real mm. sense of the craziness that they're up to. Um, but the uh, the growing season has already begun, and with Thorkel still recovering from his injuries, very little hay is grown and harvested at his farm. Right. Now, Bjarni is still determined to patch things up with his cousin. So when he learns of Thorkel's struggles, he invites Thorkel and Thorkel's wife and the entire household to stay at his farm, which puts Thorkel in a super awkward position. Starve or accept the hospitality of your father's killer. Well, when you put it that way, it's a pretty rotten choice to have to make, really. Yeah, but I don't think we're supposed to think of it that way. No, I mean, this is about whether high-minded men can find a way to end a cycle of violence, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. Thematically... We're seeing something very much in the same tradition as Njal's saga, right? We, we mentioned this ending before. Uh, Kari tests the limit of Flosi's generosity of spirit by showing up at his door on a stormy night. And the outcome is similar as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Thorkel and his household spend the winter with Bjarni, and once they're together, they're able to work out a settlement between them. It's almost like when you talk to each other, things resolve themselves. There you go. Mm. Thorkel course, what accepts- we talk about is compensation. <laughs> right. Thorkel accepts a monetary compensation, speaking of compensation, uh, for his father. And and the two men agree to a peace that lasts the rest of their lives. Quite right. Nice. And that's it for our story. 
the saga ends by praising Thorkel as a great chieftain, a most valiant man, and a great helper in lawsuits. This is awful. Uh, it ends awfully quick. It does. But it does also note that he was unwise with money and that late in life he actually had to return to Bjarni for financial help. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Bjarni, on the other hand, is called a brisk man who was no great sage. <laughs> but for whom things tended to go well. So he's right. lucky. a lucky dullard is what we're. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, great pigment apparent- material there. Right. There you go. Uh, but I mean, he's enough of a, fin- a financial success that he can put up with uh, Thorkel mooching off of him in their old age. Mm. Yeah. There does seem to be a slight bias toward Thorkel in this saga's conclusion. I think um, even though he's not great with money, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, the final paragraph is this long list of Thorkel's descendants, uh, which includes several religious figures of note, including a couple of bishops, uh, Thorlak the Holy and uh, Paul Johnson. Uh, mm. But but it's not real mind-blowing, his list of descendants, but those two are really no. significant. Sure. Uh, as a matter of fact, Robert Cook figures that this saga must have been written by or for the descendants of Thorkel Gateson because his family is listed at the end of the saga. But the somewhat more prominent descendants of Bjarni Brodhelgason, they aren't mentioned. Yeah. And th- maybe that explains kind of Gator's reticence to act mm-hmm. is, you know, if this is supposed to promote the family of a of a bishop, you don't want him to really be too aggressive. Right. Yeah. But uh, that, sadly, or fortunately, brings <laughs> us to the end of uh, Vopnafjord's saga. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of disappointed, actually. Why is that? Well, because even though we took our time here, I still feel like we rushed and left a lot out. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's not a terribly long saga, and we've already been talking about it for quite some time. Now, uh, to pull back the curtain a little bit, uh, people should know that it is often late at night when we record these things after our kids are in bed. Uh, it is currently a quarter to midnight, and uh, we have work in the morning. Ah. So I don't think we're going to get into any more detail than we've already done. Quarter to midnight, shmorter to midnight, <laughs> I say. But... So uh, next time around, we will judge the saga and maybe go into a little bit more depth. Uh, But in the meantime, let us know what you thought and uh, what you'd like to know more about. And maybe we'll cover it in the judgment section. You you have to to tell them how to do that. You can leave a comment on the WordPress site for the show, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, or join in the conversation on our Facebook page where we are Podcast, or on Twitter at sagathingpod. Or go ahead and email us, all you old fogies out there, where we are, Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can uh, break into a fortune cookie factory, write a note on one of the little sheets of paper, and then wait for one of us to order takeout. Or don't do that, because it's nonsense. Not necessarily. I order a lot of takeout. We'll be back soon. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Yeah, see, that's not good. We've seen that. Yeah, it's not. Uh, killing an enemy by burning his farm is morally repugnant, legally risky. Risky? Mm-hmm. Very risky. All in the wrist. <laughs> uh, it's all how you throw the torches.